You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. So, um, again, if you're not familiar, uh, Esther, uh, she was uh, orphaned, um, and, uh, and Mordecai kind of took her as, uh, as his daughter. And, um, and so he raised her. Long story short, uh, she uh, ends up becoming queen uh, of Persia. Um, also during this time, uh, uh, Mordecai, uh, he actually fi- discovers a plot to assassinate the king. Uh, and so he notifies the king and thwarts the plot. Uh, and then shortly after that, a guy by the name of Haman uh, is kind of promoted to be second in command over Persia. Uh, what comes along with this is that people are meant to bow down and pay homage to, uh, to Haman, uh, but Mordecai doesn't. He refuses to do so. Um, and, um, and all the text says is that he didn't do it because he was a Jew, right? It's like the author assumes that you understand why that would be a problem, right? Um, and, uh, and then uh, Haman, uh, it says that it, he, he thought that it was beneath him to just kill Mordecai, uh, and so, instead, he comes up with a plot to annihilate every Jewish person uh, on the planet. Um, so, uh, I'm not sure what, how it would be beneath you to, whatever. But that was his perspective. So, uh, he wanted to take a step further and annihilate the Jewish people. So, he, um, he convinces the, uh, the king to actually issue this decree. Um, this is when Esther kind of comes in. And this is, uh, this is where we start in uh, was chapter 5 last week. Uh, and if you weren't there last week, I would suggest that you go on our podcast and listen uh, to Ovi uh, kind of going through chapter five. Uh, it's, again, very important, and he did a great job. But, uh, but chapter five is where Esther starts playing her cards. So she invites the king and Haman to a very special banquet. Um, and really, a lot of what she's doing is she's, uh, she's kind of uh, garnering favor with the king uh, and also keeping Haman close. Um, but, uh, but she doesn't quite show her cards yet, right? So it's just the first banquet. Uh, and then the second banquet is when uh, she's going to kind of pull out all the stops. Um, and, uh, and Esther, being a Jew, is going to accuse Mordecai of essentially trying to assassinate the queen uh, and so on and so forth. But again, that's next week. So uh, this is where we left off uh, in, uh, in chapter 5. Um, and, uh, and I would like us to just read uh, the, le- the very last section of chapter 5 um, and talk about this for a little bit, because like I said, this is going to set up uh, in very important detail uh, the rest of chapter 6. So, uh, Esther chapter 5, 9 through 14. So, immediately after uh, Haman just uh, went to his banquet, uh, he is on cloud 9. This is where we start off in chapter 9. It says, Then Haman went out that day joyful and pleased of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, and he did not stand up or tremble before him, Haman was filled with anger against Mordecai. Haman controlled himself. However, he went to his house, um, but uh, he sent for his friends and his wife, Zaharish. Then Haman told him the glories of his riches and his many sons and every occasion on which the king had honored him and how he had promoted him above the officials and servants of the king. Haman also said that even Esther the queen let no one except me come to the king, uh, come with the king to the banquet which she had prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her with the king. Yet all of this does not satisfy me Every time I see Mordecai the Jew, 
sitting at the king's gate. Then Zaharish, his wife, and all his friends said to him, Have a wooden gallows fifty cubits high made, and in the morning ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it. Then go joyfully with the king to the banquet. Uh, and the advice pleased Haman, so he had a wooden gallows made. All right, so that's where we left off last week. And like I said, uh, there's uh, some stuff I want us to unpack um, and uh, just make sure that we fully understand before we get into six. Now, before we get much more, uh, I'd like for us to pray and, uh, and just ask that God uh, kind of speak to his people uh, through this text. Dear God, I just, um, I thank you for today. I thank you for everything that you've given to us. Um, I thank you for this, uh, this body of believers uh, that, uh, that you've, you've brought together um, in very unique, unique ways. I ask that you just, um, you speak to your church uh, today and uh, you speak to your church uh, with your word and through your word. And, uh, and I ask that you just um, do everything you can to remove me from that process. Um, and uh, just all the bias and pride um, that, uh, that I kind of uh, carry with me. But instead, you, uh, you just speak to your people and encourage your people, challenge your people. And, um, and I ask that you just you move through us uh, with your spirit uh, to do the work of reconciliation that, uh, that you have given to us. And we love you. And thank you again for everything. Amen. So again, uh, and I mentioned this a couple weeks ago when I, uh, when I did uh, chapter four, but, uh, and we've kind of been beating this drum, but uh, again, Esther doesn't mention the name of God. Uh, and I mentioned this a couple weeks ago where it's, it's not like the author just like forgot, right? Uh, it wasn't a, a mistake. Uh, in fact, quite the opposite. It's very obvious that the author really wants to talk about God. Uh, and it's almost as if they run right up to the line of like talking about God in almost every way, but then they just stop short of actually mentioning the name of God, right? Um, so it's actually quite intentional. Uh, it's, not, uh, it's not an afterthought or it's not something that was forgotten. It's, it's actually quite intentional. But why would the author do this? Um, and we talked about this where it's, uh, what this actually does is uh, it allows us to look at the characters and not get distracted by potential theological uh, conversations or discussions, right? Uh, instead, the author is really drawing us into focusing on the, the ethic and the decisions uh, that the characters find themselves in, Right? Uh, even though they might not be able to have direct, uh, direct line with God or direct conversations with God, uh, it's very obvious that they know that God is working. Uh, Mordecai uh, made this very clear in chapter 4. Uh, the author is going to make it very clear in chapter 6 uh, again. But, um, but really, they, they want us to draw us into how the characters are behaving. Now, in chapter 6, uh, and really from chapter 5, what we just read, uh, the main character is really Haman, the bad guy, right? And if, if our focus is meant to be, what is, what is the ethic? What, how are these, these individuals behaving? This week, I really want us to focus on Haman, right? Um, and I think a lot of times, and we're, you, you, if you've read chapter six, um, it's, it's somewhat comical, right? Uh, the irony is just so thick. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about all the different uh, points of irony here. But it's, it's very easy for us to actually look at Haman and just be like, wow, like, what a jerk, right? Uh, like this guy, like how, how could you be so depraved? Um, 
And I think there's, a, there's kind of an uncomfortable part of this story is that Haman really does represent us uh, pretty well. Um, more than I think we would like to, uh, we would like to argue. Um, now, obviously it's not going to be the same shot for shot that Haman represents us, right? Like you probably haven't wanted to commit genocide because someone didn't honor you, right? Um, at least I hope that has never crossed your mind. Um, if it has, I don't know, talk to me privately. But, uh, but this, uh, yeah, the, obviously we're, we're, we're not dealing with the same things that, that Haman is necessarily struggling with. However, uh, like I said, I, I think at the root of it, uh, what we see in Haman is just the same exact sin nature that we have in all of us. And it's manifested in this pride that in this story just looks so disgusting and maybe even, like I said, is comical because it's like, how, how could a human being ever think something like this? But I think in a lot of ways, um, at least from God's perspective or from the perspective of pure holiness, uh, we often do a lot of the same things. And, uh, and Haman said something uh, very, very interesting um, where he, <laughs> he brought his wife and all of his friends together and then he just bragged about himself, right? This is how much money I have. This is how many kids I have. This is how many times a king has honored me. This is how much Esther likes me, even though we never interacted. Um, and little does he know, like she's setting the stage to get him killed, but whatever, uh, that's totally blind to him. But uh, he, all of these things uh, just makes him so joyful. It even says in that day, he was so joyful and pleased of heart. And, and then in verse 13, it says, and yet all of this does not satisfy me every time I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. And this, I think this is what, uh, this is the human condition that we all find ourselves in. And this really did start back in Genesis 3. And I want us to go back to this and if you're not familiar with Genesis 3, this is uh, the fall of mankind. Um, and I feel like I've talked about this a lot, but it, it all starts here, right? Where, uh, where Adam and Eve sinned, uh, and God asked Adam what happened, and he said, well, it's a woman's fault. And then the woman said, well, it's a snake's fault. And then God curses the snake, and then he curses the woman, and then he gets to Adam, and this is where we're picking up. So Genesis 3, 17. He tells Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. With hard labor you shall eat from it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you. Yet you shall eat the plants of the field, and by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This curse, uh, I think a lot of times uh, we read this curse and we read the other curses and we think like, oh, this is Adam and Eve's punishment for uh, for eating the apple. Um, I'd actually argue uh, kind of the opposite. Uh, this is actually an act of grace uh, given to us by God. Is that what's being told of Adam is that he will work hard. It's by the sweat of his brow that he's going to work and work and work. And what does he get from this work? His bread. And all bread can offer you is something that satisfies for a moment and then you just get hungry again, Right? And it's this, this is the curse that all men carry is that we just constantly work for something that might satisfy for a time or, and that's the best case scenario, the worst case scenario is that it doesn't satisfy at all. And we see this in Haman, don't we? Right, he's just, he's working and he's working and he's working, right? 
He's the second most powerful human being on the planet at this time. And he says, none of it satisfies me. Why? Because Mordecai. Just the one guy. That's it. And I think we, we see this, the, again, this is our condition. This is the human state. Is that we're constantly working and working and working only in our best case scenarios to be satisfied for a little bit. And this is what we see, this is how we see ourselves in Haman, is that we can, we can kind of resonate with this, can't we? We can resonate with this. It doesn't matter how much you have. It doesn't matter how awesome your job is. It doesn't matter how great your car is. It would just be better if dot, 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 right? And this, this lack of satisfaction, uh, and again, like I said, I, I, I believe and I would argue that this curse is not necessarily a punishment, but it's actually an act of grace. Because if there was something on this planet that satisfied us, we wouldn't be driven back into Eden. We wouldn't be looking for Eden. And this is exactly what happens later in, uh, in, in throughout uh, Israel's history, right? Is they're given the tabernacle, and what's the tabernacle? Well, it's, it's like it's a, it's a recreation of Eden, Right? The men, uh, uh, Adam and Eve, were driven east of Eden. And how did you get back into the tabernacle? Through the east gate, right? Uh, the presence of God was in the tabernacle. Uh, as you passed through the east gate, there was pictures of the cherubim on the walls, right? And God placed a cherubim in Eden. You see how these curses were the things that actually drove mankind back into Eden. And I, I think we should thank God for this, this thing that inside of all of us that just always leaves us unsatisfied, because what we actually find satisfaction in is Christ. It is in the presence of God. This is where we find satisfaction. Now, Haman was totally blind to this, right? As most of us are, right? Uh, in fact, all of us have been blind to it at some point. But again, this is the beauty of the curse is that it drives us somewhere. And ideally, it drives us back to Christ. So again, we see Haman, uh, he's, uh, he just has so much and yet he's not satisfied. Uh, and again, I think it's easy for us to look at Haman or even just rich people in general where it's like, you know, like they have so much and then, I don't know, they get depressed or um, they get lost in drugs and all these other things that they're looking for satisfaction. And we're just like, why can't you just be happy? You literally have everything, Right. Um, and I think that's a natural reaction, and I feel, and we see a lot of, we, at least me personally, I feel a lot of that with Haman, right? Where I'm just like, dude, just be happy. Just chill, just be happy, right? Uh, you're not going to win them all, right? Mordecai's just one guy, just get over it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, this is, this is something where a lot of our struggles are somewhat relative, right? Um, rich people, they struggle differently than, say, poor people, right? Um, and... Uh, and yes, obviously there are, there are going to be uh, massive differences and we're going to talk about that. But this is the first question that I want us to ask ourselves. Uh, so the first point of application uh, from this, the thing that we need to be asking ourselves, again, we're looking at the ethic of Haman and we need to be asking ourselves, do we do this or what can we do to avoid the pitfalls of Haman? The first question is, what do we believe will satisfy, but it just never does? We just take a look at our lives and we ask ourselves, what are, we, what are we looking for that's going to satisfy us? 
What is that thing in our lives that we just think, man, that's, this is going to be great, or this is going to make things better, or this is just going to make my life uh, really kind of kick off, or I'm finally going to get ahead if I have X or Y. Now, it might be true, that thing might get you ahead, and it's true, it might make you happy, but just recognize that it's not going to satisfy you. It's not going to satisfy your soul. And I can say that confidently because if it's not Christ, it's not going to do it. So we need to ask ourselves this question, because again, this is going to allow us to avoid the pitfalls of Haman, is when we ask ourselves, what do we believe will satisfy, but it never does? For Haman, uh, and Ovi talked about this last week, it was his idol. His idol was being the most important thing, right? The best he could come up with was being second in command. And that was his, if you will, uh, kind of his drug of choice. Every time he was honored, every time he was the most important person in the room, he got his hit, right? And, but that high died real quick every time he saw Mordecai. And so instead of asking himself, why isn't this satisfying me? He saw the one thing that was taking his high away and he said, I need to eliminate that thing. And so this leads us to chapter six. Now we're going to get into... Um, kind of what happened and what's unique uh, about this story. So in chapter 6, uh, we'll, uh, we'll read some. Verse 1, it says, During that night, uh, the king could not sleep, and so he gave an order to bring uh, the book of records and chronicles, uh, and they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai had reported uh, that Bichthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who were doorkeepers, that they had sought to attack King Ahasuerus. Then the king said, What honor or dignity was bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. So the king said, Who's in the courtyard? And now Haman had entered the outer court of the king's palace in order to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the wooden gallows which he had prepared for him. So let's stop right there for a moment. And again, you, you see the irony that's being set up. Um, and I see a lot of people smiling because it is. It, 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 there's, there's a little bit of comic uh, irony here. Um, now, it's, it gets pretty brutal, but you guys see where like, this is going. Um, uh, you could argue that Mordecai was probably up all night building this gallows. It would have been massive, right? Uh, and uh, King Ahasuerus also was up all night just because he couldn't sleep, right? Both men are up all night thinking about Mordecai. Both men, first thing in the morning, want to talk to each other about Mordecai, right? Uh, like, it, like you, you see how this is all shaping up, but, but the king, he wants to honor Mordecai, and, uh, and Haman wants to murder the guy. Um, also, uh, what's interesting, uh, at least in the context of the Old Testament, um, people not being able to sleep all night uh, is, uh, is a bit of a cipher uh, for God's actually working, Right? Um, we see this pretty, uh, pretty often um, in kind of major, major events. Um, like a, a pretty popular one is uh, Samuel, right? Um, Samuel not being able to sleep uh, because God keeps waking him up and kind of giving him commands, so on and so forth. So again, we see the author kind of slipping this in there, right? Uh, most Jews uh, familiar with their, uh, with their Torah uh, would have read something like this and just been like, yep, that's God, right? Um, so the king can't sleep. Uh, he reads the Chronicles, uh, and that's when he's like, oh, yeah, we, we just never uh, honored Mordecai. 
Now, within Persian culture, uh, this is actually kind of a bigger deal uh, than uh, maybe we would recognize. Uh, we have other extra-biblical sources, historical accounts, uh, that talks about how the Persians, uh, if you save someone's life, uh, it was like you were obligated to do something uh, kind of extraordinary to honor that individual, right? So this actually was probably a bit of a, a, humility, uh, a, a humiliating uh, discovery by the king. It's like, we didn't do anything? How do this makes me look so bad. We have to do something for this guy, right? Um, and, uh, and so instead of just sweeping under the rug, uh, he's like, who's in the courtyard? We got to figure this out. Uh, and again, it's, it's Haman. Um, now, again, Haman, he's, uh, he's dead set on murdering this guy, and the king is dead set on honoring him. So back in verse 5, it says, so the king's servant uh, told him, behold, Haman is standing in the courtyard. The king said, have him come in. Haman then came in, uh, and the king said to him, uh, what is to be done for the man whom the king desires to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom would the king desire to honor more than me? Uh, <laughs> so let's, uh, let's stop right there, because there's, there's some interesting uh, dialogue here. Um, it's not entirely clear on if the king worded this, uh, this question uh, this way on purpose, but he obviously, he doesn't say the word Mordecai, he doesn't say the word Haman, he just says, hey, what do you think would be the best case scenario for the person that I want to honor, right? And up until this point, it's the only character that has been honored is Haman. So it almost seems as if the king is setting Haman up because Haman wouldn't have thought of anyone else other than him because he's the only one that's being honored. Uh, in fact, in verse 3, uh, Haman was honored, and then uh, the king gave him his signet ring. Um, and then chapter 5, we just read, uh, he's, he told his friends and his wife about the many times the king honored him. So you see, like this is this habitual uh, thing where Haman is being honored over and over and over. And then the king says, what should I do for the person that I want to honor? And Haman's like, well, you only honor me, so let's just pull out all the stops, right? And so it's, it's a pretty, it's a, it's a natural assumption that Haman made this, uh, made this assumption. Uh, it's also a little funny if the king actually did this on purpose. Again, it's not clear. I don't want to read too much into that. But uh, it does seem uh, somewhat intentional that the king didn't mention anyone's name, um, and perhaps this was, uh, if it was intentional, perhaps it was just to get Haman's honest opinion, right? What would you love? Let's do that for this guy, right? Um, and so uh, Haman, <laughs> again, if he just asked this question that we're going to talk about, um, just for a second, he probably wouldn't have said all these things. <laughs> so uh, verse 7, um, it says, uh, Therefore uh, Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king desires to honor, uh, give them a royal robe which the king has worn and the horse on which the king has ridden and on whose head a royal turban has been placed. And then order them to hand the robe and the horse over to one of the king's noble officials and have them dress the man um, whom the king desires to honor and lead him on horseback through the city square and proclaim before him, so it shall be done, for the man whom the king desires to honor. So this is, uh, this is just Haman's like fantasy, right? And he, this was on the tip of his tongue, like he knew. He knew the answer, right? Because he had already thought through this, right? 
uh, yeah, Haman needed no time to think through this. And uh, so he's like, I know exactly what would make this guy's day. Uh, <laughs> whoever he may be. So, uh, but what's interesting about these things, and again, uh, this... It, Persia, Persian culture was not necessarily that different where uh, the royal robe, that's only for the king, right? That's not something you just kind of like share or like pass around to your buddies. Uh, same with the royal horse, uh, same with the uh, royal turban um, and the signet ring for that matter. But, uh, but the king, King Ahasuerus, uh, seems like he's a little bit more comfortable with uh, flexing the rules a little bit. And, uh, and you really... It, if this was Haman, think about this. He would have had the signet ring, he would have had the robe, he would have had the turban, and he would have had the horse, right? And he would have gone through this city, and so he would have had the adoration of the entire people, of the capital city, of the biggest uh, empire in the known world at that time. Like, Haman would have been it. Uh, I read some, uh, some commentators where they said, like, this may have been Haman's attempt at, at a power grab and maybe, like, uh, try to overthrow the king, I don't really see that here, right? I, I see where they're coming from, but I really think Haman, um, his whole intent was just, again, getting one more hit, right? His drug of choice, the thing that was most important to him, the thing that he thought was going to satisfy his soul more than anything is being the most important person. And if even being king for one day, that, that would be it. And so, and this, this is exactly, he would have literally everything that the king would have that's only reserved for the king, except he wouldn't have had Esther, uh, which again, there's a lot of irony here because you'll see in chapter seven uh, that he's actually accused of trying to rape Esther. So, and again, it wouldn't be that much of a stretch for the king to come to that conclusion because it's very obvious that Haman already wants everything of mine. So, this, uh, yeah, to be continued. Uh, come back next week. We'll talk about that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but here we, act, we, we see Haman, what, what he, what he de- desperately desires is just, a, again, another one, another hit. He just wants to be the most important thing in the world, right? And for a day, he really would. And this is maybe a question that we need to ask ourselves. Again, referring back to the thing that satisfies us but never does. Back to the curse, the thing that we're always looking for, the thing that just, it might satisfy but only for a little, best case scenario. The second question that we need to ask ourselves is do we, do we believe that we deserve more only because we already have so much? Do we believe that we deserve more because we already have so much. Now, again, if, if this thought or something even just a little bit similar to it had crossed Haman's mind, he probably would have like pumped the brakes a little bit about doing this. But Haman, he, full stop, he believed that he deserved all of this. Why? Because it was just kind of, that's his history. Again, the many times that the king honored Haman like when he got the signet ring, when he became second in command, when he got promoted over all the other officials, when he got invited to Esther's party. Like you, you see these things over and over and over, and it's just, it's kind of, uh, it's cued him into this idea that I deserve these things. Clearly, they keep happening to me. And I think we often do this, don't we? 
especially with our material things or, or maybe even our relationships where we, we feel like we deserve this uh, just because we've always had something similar. Um, like maybe we, we deserve a nicer car because we put in our time with a n- less nice of a car or maybe we deserve uh, a better job uh, because we had a really bad job in the past uh, so we put in our time. Um, but you see how they're, they're actually quite similar because, you know, did, did you really deserve that job in the first place? Uh, did you deserve that car in the first place? Now, uh, please hear me. I don't, I don't want anyone thinking like, oh, I can't have nice stuff. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. Okay, can we all agree? Like, having nice things, that's a blessing from God. Okay, those are good things. The problem comes when we think that these things are going to satisfy or worse yet, we become... Uh, we become entitled and we think that we deserve these things. This is where the problem comes up and this is where the problem uh, hits Haman really hard. Is he believes that he deserves these things. This is, uh, in human psychology, this is known as something called recency bias. Uh, recency bias, again, in just human nature, as we come to the conclusion that the thing that occurred most recently in the past is the thing that's most likely to also occur in the future. Um, and again, we, we all do this, and it kind of it does help us out. But uh, even in like um, I guess like financial markets, uh, everyone prepares for like another 2008 financial crash. It's like well, it's not going to happen because we're prepared for it, right? But that's recency bias. Is we're 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 ready for the thing that we already know, which means we're just woefully unprepared for the things to still come. And this is, this is exactly what's happening with Haman, is he just knows recency bias. Well, I'm the only one that the king wants to honor. I'm the one that the king always wants to honor. So let's pull out all the stops. I deserve this, clearly. History tells me I deserve this, so the future is going to bear out in that same way. And again, I, I, just, I want us to, to really kind of wrestle with this, because I think this is the source of a lot of times when we go through trials or we go through hard things in life. Uh, something awful happens to us. And we, we always question God, why would you allow this to happen? Why would we ever ask that question? Unless we thought that maybe we deserve better. Maybe we feel like we deserve that, that God always has to look out for us and protect us and make sure that we're comfy, you know? And I think this is, a, again, just another spot where we can actually see ourselves in Haman. Haman believes that he deserves this because he already has so much, and I think we often do too. Like I said, and I think this is most clearly when we go through trials and we go through persecution, perhaps, um, or uh, maybe our sin is finally found out. We're just like, oh, but it wasn't that bad, right? Or I don't deserve this much flack. Or I don't deserve my life falling apart like this. What if you do? What if we all deserve it? What if, again, we go back to the question of what if, what if these things were never meant to satisfy us? What if the thing that satisfies our soul is the grace of God that he's given to us through Jesus Christ? What if the thing that gets us uh, to, to some kind of satisfied state uh, is just the forgiveness of Christ, which is not what we deserve at all? But when we come to this conclusion that we deserve more because we have more, this is what creates pride in us. And this is why Haman appears so disgusting to us. But I just challenge us uh, to recognize that uh, we're a lot more like Haman than we like to realize. 
And so we'll read uh, through the rest of chapter 6. So in verse 10, it says, Then the king said to Haman, Quickly, take the robe and the horse, just as you have said, and do so for Mordecai the Jew, who is sitting uh, at the king's gate. Which is exactly how uh, Haman refers to him. Mordecai the Jew who's sitting at the king's gate. Do not fail to do anything that you have said. Uh, So Haman took the robe and the horse and dressed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city square. And Haman proclaimed before him, so it shall be done for the man whom the king desires to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate while Haman hurried home mourning uh, with his covered head. And Haman informed Zaharish, his wife, and all his friends of everything that had happened to him. Then his, wife, uh, then his uh, wise men and Zaharish, his wife, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish origin, you will not prevail over him, but you will certainly fall before him. While they were still speaking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and quickly brought Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. And like I said, chapter seven really gets out of hand quick. So uh, come back next week. Um, so again, we just see just, just so thick with irony, uh, this whole scenario, right? Um, like if anyone did this to Mordecai, like if anyone honored, like if it, maybe it was just a noble, another noble person that paraded uh, Mordecai around, uh, that itself probably would have been uh, just infuriating to Haman all on its own. But what's worse is Haman is the one that's actually doing the parading, right? Haman is the one that has to actually honor Mordecai on behalf of the king. Haman's the one that has to dress Mordecai, which is also a bit humiliating, um, and then also walk, uh, walk the horse around as, uh, as Mordecai is riding. So again, we, we see this, uh, this, this very, th- uh, it's thick with irony. Um, he also has to pronounce uh, that this is the person uh, that the king wants to honor, uh, which again, everyone would have recognized, okay, so it's not you this time, right? So th- just in every single way, this would have been humiliating uh, for Haman. And we even see this, is that Mordecai returned to the king's gate, right? He just went back to his job or mourning. It's, it's not entirely clear if Mordecai's still in the mourning process. Uh, but Mordecai just goes back to doing what he does, uh, while Haman hurried home, mourning and covering his head. Now, this is the second instance in which we actually see people mourning and covering their head. Uh, Mordecai um, actually was doing this when he was mourning that the, uh, the plot to kill the Jewish people was actually announced and decreed. So we see Mordecai mourning because of a genocide. And then we see Haman mourning because... Yeah, because of what? Like he he didn't he didn't get uh, honored again, um, and worse yet, he had to honor someone that he didn't like. And again, I I think we can look at this and just kind of almost laugh at the guy because we're just like you're just so out of touch. But I I, I think again I I feel like we can see ourselves in this scenario where it's from God's perspective. How often does he ask? Uh, does he see what we do as the same thing? Just like, man, I've given you so much and you're crying about this one thing. Uh, how, how often do we, do we go through this where we, I don't know, maybe we actually do uh, get humiliated, right? Um, and instead of falling on our knees before God and repenting, instead we just kind of feel bad for ourselves. 
And this is, this is the, the third question that I want us to ask ourselves so that we can kind of avoid the traps of haven. This is the third question. Do we grow through our humiliation or do we just ignore it or avoid it? Um, can't remember where I heard this from, um, but, uh, but it's kind of this idea of don't ever let a good trial go to waste, right? When we go through something hard, when we go through something terrible, or worse yet, uh, our sin has been found out, and now we have to uh, deal with our sin. Um, don't let that go to waste, right? Lean into that. This is God actually calling us. Humility uh, is a part of the sanctification process. Um, I, I had a, a buddy who um, it was found out that he had this porn addiction, and, um, and his, his wife found out, and he asked me, he's like, what do I do, man? I'm just like, lean into it. Like you messed up. But like for a moment, you get to feel the weight of your sin just totally unencumbered. Let that wreck you because you don't get these very often. And I, I think this is, this is something that, that Mordecai, he had this opportunity to just be like, ah, maybe I'm doing something wrong. Right? Do we grow through our humiliation? Because it's going to happen to all of us. Um, and even if it's not even our fault, maybe we're just humiliated for totally separate reasons, we can still grow through that, right? Um, those opportunities can, can deepen our faith and strengthen our relationship with Christ. So any way you look at it, do, it's, it's in, in our humiliation, do we, do we grow in it or do we just ignore it? Or worse yet, just try to figure out like, oh, I just need this, this awful feeling to stop, right? Because that's what, that's what Haman did. I just need this awful feeling to stop. Every time I see Mordecai, I just need it to stop. So I'm just going to kill him. When instead, if he just sat in it, why does this bother me so much? Why does this make everything else feel small? Why am I feeling so humiliated? Perhaps he would have had the opportunity to actually see this for what it was. And I think we can learn a lot from Haman in this. Where it's when we find ourselves humiliated, to such ridiculous degrees, we should be asking ourselves, what should I be looking into? What a part of my life doesn't reflect Christ? What do I think is going to satisfy me, but it never does? Also, you see Mordecai's uh, wife and friends uh, kind of do a 180. Um, and uh, they just told him to kill Mordecai the Jew. It's not like they didn't know that he was a Jew, Right? They knew exactly what he was. Um, so uh, in, uh, in verse five, they said, just kill Mordecai the Jew. And now here they're just like, sorry, man, like you're out of luck. Um, and how do we know that? It's because he's a Jew. It's like, why, why, what, what caused this, this, this shift? Why is it now they're fully convinced that, oh, it's because Mordecai's a Jew that you're actually going to fall before him? Um, there's, uh, there's a lot of different speculation as to what generated uh, the, uh, the switch, uh, but it is very obvious that uh, Mordecai definitely is taking up residence in Haman's head, and now Haman is actually, and they even said this, uh, whom you have begun to fall. And it does, they do tie this, uh, this relationship to his Jewish origins, um, and they say you will not prevail over him, but you will certainly fall before him. Um, now, again, there's a little bit of irony here uh, is because a little bit earlier in chapter or in Esther, 
The king gave a decree that the women need to behave uh, in certain ways before their husbands, right? Uh, almost like their property to their husbands, uh, and the women should never speak anything against their husbands. And what does the Harish do? You're going to lose. You're losing this one, right? So not only is everything falling apart for Haman, but now his wife is actually breaking the law just to like give, give her husband a little bit of wisdom, right? This isn't working out for you. And so now we even have these, these Gentiles, these wise men and, um, and Zaharish actually speaking wisdom uh, to, uh, to Haman. And yet we'll see in chapter 7 uh, that it's just never going to work out for him. And he never actually sees what's going on uh, in his life. And pride has a way of doing that, doesn't it? It blinds us to the things of God. And it's not like it's this magic thing where it's like, oh, that's, that's only a property of pride. It's, it's really a property of all sin. Uh, but pride does us in a very specific way because the reason why we can't see the things of God is because all we see are the things of ourselves. All we want to see are the things that we think are going to satisfy us. And this is why I think Paul brings us up uh, in 1 Corinthians, and we're going to read this. I think this is why Paul actually uh, makes this very clear and, and makes this point in 1 Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. And it says, uh, For consider your calling, brothers and sisters, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And, in, and the insignificant things of the world, um, I'm sorry, insignificant things of the world and, uh, and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, uh, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no human may boast before God. But it is due to him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is exactly what, what is happening specifically with pride, is that when we boast in ourselves, when we find ourselves in the situations similar to Haman, when we find ourselves looking for satisfaction in something other than Christ, all this produces in us is something to boast in. And again, this is a complete reversal of Eden. This is exactly, uh, I don't have time to get into the actual fall of them eating the fruit in the Garden of Eden, uh, but this is quite literally exactly what Adam and Eve were trying to accomplish. And this is something that has been dogging humanity ever since. Is that the knowledge of good and evil, what that was, is this was this opportunity for us to make up the rules. We can determine what's good and evil. We don't have to just follow what God says anymore. What if we were able to judge for ourselves? And this is exactly what we see Haman doing, is he's going to determine what's best for him in his life. He's going to determine what satisfies him and what makes him whole. And this is exactly what Paul is warning us against, is consider your calling, right? The reason why the gospel does so well with the meek and the poor and the marginalized in society is because they're fully aware of their depravity. And yet, the things that make us rich and the things that boast us and the things that make us feel like we're something, that's what gets in the way 
of our salvation. That's what gets in the way of us seeing Christ in our lives. And Paul's warning us, don't fall into that because this is how God works. At least from our perspective, he always uses the foolish things to confound the wise. Why? So that let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. This is what we're built for. This is Eden. This is us communing with God. This is us finding all of our satisfaction and all of us, all of our self in Christ. And also, uh, just another uh, way of encouragement uh, about, about the pride uh, of life and about um, just the pride of all mankind. I want us to look at Isaiah 2. Isaiah 2 is, um, well, let's just read it. Isaiah 2, 12 through 22. For the Lord of armies will have a day of reckoning against everyone who is arrogant and haughty, and against everyone who is lifted up, that he may be brought low. And it will be against all the cedars of Lebanon that are lofty and lifted up, against the oaks of Bashan, against the all lofty mountains, against all the hills that are lifted up, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the delightful ships. And the pride of humanity will be humbled, and the arrogance of people will be brought low. And the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. And the idols will completely vanish. People will go into the caves uh, of rocks and into holes in the ground, away from the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. When he arises to terrify the earth on that day, people will throw away to the moles and bats their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they had made for themselves to worship. In order to go into the clefts of the rock and the crannies of the cliffs before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty, when he arises to terrify the earth, take no account of man whose breath of life is in his nostrils, for why should he be esteemed? I want us to recognize that, and this is just on repeat throughout the entirety of the Bible, is that God opposes the proud, right? but he exalts the humble and he loves humility. This is something that we can learn so deeply from Haman. And again, if we're meant to look at the ethic of Haman, uh, we, there's so much to learn is that it's humility that allows us to actually commune with God. And what's more is that God will do something about it. He will do something about our pride. He will do something about our pride, whether it be on this day, the day of reckoning, or it, uh, it be some humiliating event like what we see in Haman, or we do so willingly where we humble ourselves before the Lord and beg for forgiveness and beg for sanctification. But God will do something about our pride. And I think what we can learn the most from Haman is that there are some questions that we can ask in order to avoid these events in our lives. Uh, and there are some things that we can do to actually participate in humiliating ourselves and humbling ourselves before the Lord. And again, this is what do we believe will satisfy, but it never does. The next one is, do we believe that we deserve more because we already have so much? And the last one is, do we grow through our humiliation? 
or do we just ignore it or avoid it? Also, on just one last note, that last verse on Isaiah 2, um, this is one of my most favorite verses, um, which I know is like a weird life verse. It's not a life verse, but you know what I mean. Uh, Take no account of man whose breath is in his nostrils, for why should he be esteemed? I think there's a lot to learn from that. Um, Men are broken. They're all broken. And uh, often I hear people talk about, you know, I don't like to go to church or I don't like church because it's full of hypocrites. Yep, because we're all men, right? Well, we should all be esteemed lightly. Instead, exalt the Lord, orient our heart toward God, because he won't let you down. Let's pray. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.